Good morning. I am so glad to see you. You made it in this cold weather and the COVID. But the good news is the COVID is coming down really fast, isn't it? Um, I really think in a few weeks it'll just go all the way. And then, and then hopefully, finally, how many like false starts have we had, right? Like we thought, oh, we're going to be okay. We can breathe again. Oh, no. It's another variant. But I really think at this point, I mean, how long could it really go on, right? Our human bodies have immune systems. I mean, eventually, we'll be okay. So that's the hope we got, and I'm really hoping this is the year it's going to be all right. Amen? Amen? I'm really praying for that. Let's have a good time this year. Anyway, uh, today I'm studying a really important and personally exciting to me, a new sermon series called What Makes Gospel Good News? Gospel is very important to me, and I, it literally means good news. And it needs to be good news, but it's really not these days, right? I mean, how many of you feel excited about sharing the gospel? You know what I mean? How many of you feel like, oh yeah, I want to tell my coworkers, you know, hey, I want to share the gospel with you. Anyone? Nobody, right? I mean, it's not good news these days. It's bad news, right? If anyone tries to do that to you, it's bad news, right? You, oh, I don't want to, right? What happened? Why, is, why has good news become bad news? Something is profoundly wrong, don't you think? I mean, it's, it's how everyone feels. So there's something profoundly wrong. I think one big reason this has happened is because of what I talked about about a month ago. Remember the penal substitutionary atonement theory? This is how people think about what gospel is, or Christian for that matter. It goes like this. We are all sinners, and because God is bound by justice, God has to punish us and send us to eternity of hell and suffering because we are sinners, right? But Jesus, the firstborn son of God, took up the punishment instead of us on the cross. That's the good news. So now we are good with God and we can go to heaven. Have you heard of this? Four spiritual laws? This is what most people think of when they think of the gospel or Christian, don't you think? This is the standard theory as if there's no other way to understand Christianity. That is not true. I cannot emphasize this enough. This has not been the dominant theory of how to understand Christianity for the first thousand years of church. There have been other theories that have dominated Christian church, and there will be other theories in the future. It's just a theory. It's not, the, it's not like straight out of the gospel, like the mouth of Jesus. Jesus never mentions these things, right? It's how we understood it, rather than it's right out of the Bible. And as such, it has huge flaws. First, it makes God our enemy, right? For whatever the reason, God is threatening eternal harm to all of humanity, <laughs> Very threatening. 
God has become our enemy. Jesus is put in the position of having to rescue us from God. Isn't that like strange, problematic to begin with? That's absurd. Second, it is terribly insulting to God. God is painted as this rage-filled, wrath-filled, terrible father who gets so angry at us because we messed up. Okay, we messed up. But yeah, still, whatever happened, God was going to beat up all of us to death and to eternity of suffering until the firstborn son, our oldest brother, in one way to think about it, Jesus steps in and gets beaten up to death instead by God. So now we are good with this being because God had to beat up someone. So now God's wrath is satisfied. How is that good? Right? I mean, why would you want to get close to a being like that? Right? It sounds like an alcoholic dad who just wants to beat up someone. Right? It's just really terribly insulting to God. I like God. So I'm offended by theories like this that paints God out to be some kind of monster. So now, that was the sermon I gave about a month ago. This was a brief recap to set up the stage. But the one feedback I got from that sermon was I did a really terrific job demolishing the penal substitutionary theory. I mean, I went on for like 25 minutes pointing out all the problems with it. I mean, many, many, many problems. So I just demolished it. Okay, I did a good job with that. Fine. But I didn't spend enough time. I really didn't have much time after I spent all that time just going over it all. I didn't spend enough time talking about, well, what replaces it then? I mean, if we get rid of that theory, then how is the gospel good news then? What's the good news? What is the positive thing? Right? And I tried to address that. I even had to come up after the worship to like add a little bit. Because even my wife gave me the feedback. I got to talk a little more about what would replace this. <laughs> Remember that? So, given that feedback, I am launching this new sermon series, four part series. I'll give you four sermons on what would replace this, because I have so many thoughts about that, right? It's, uh, it's what I do. I have a lot of thoughts. Um, my wife makes fun of me for that. Um, but anyway, lots of thoughts about those things. So they are, unconditional love is the saving power. Two, unconditionality explains how born again saves. Three, unconditionality and exclusivity for unconditional approach to prayer. So those four sermons will be coming at you. I'll be preaching two sermons back to back today and next Sunday. Then I'm going to take a few weeks break and then I'll go on to third and fourth. And that's primarily because I have lots of health problems right now. I got neck disc issues, back disc issues, all kinds of stuff going on. So I need a little break in between. Okay? So forgive me for that, but that's how it is. So let's begin with the first one. Unconditional love is the saving power. Um, 
There is an important passage where Jesus lays out very clearly how salvation works and who gets saved. It's a very famous passage, very important passage about how to understand salvation. It begins with a theologian who asked Jesus about how to be saved. On one occasion, a theologian stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to be saved for eternal life? What is written in the Bible? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is called the greatest commandment. Very familiar, right? You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will be saved. Very clear. Do this, you will be saved. The answer to the question, how do we get saved, is love, right? Love, 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 love. But it's such a cliche, don't you think? It loses all relevance. I mean, love is what everybody talks about. Beatles talks about love, right? Love is all we need, right? That's Beatles, right? Anyway. Whatever. Everybody talks about love. It's in every religion and philosophy. Mothers love their children. Young people fall in love, and they can become incredibly generous, self-sacrificing even, right? Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it's fiction, but still, it happens. They even kill themselves over their love for each other. Now, that's Pretty big love, don't you think? A lot of love. Now, was that what Jesus was talking about? That's, that's what saves you for eternal heaven? Eh, I mean, that feels more like teenage hormones, right? I was hoping for some laughter there, but didn't work. But, I mean, that's not the kind of love we think of that saves you for heaven. That's like romance, you know? This is where I think theologians have done us grave disservice with inadequate translation. More accurate translation of this passage reads like this. Unconditionally love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind and unconditionally love your neighbor as yourself. Because the original Greek word for love used here is agape. Whenever you see the word love in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the positive context, it's agape. Okay, It's not others, it's agape. So we need to understand this word carefully because it's such a central concept. You see, there are four words for love in Greek. They are eros, Philia, storge, and agape. Eros is romantic love, erotic love, eros. Philia is like love for friends. Storge is like love for your family. And agape, distinguished from all these other kinds of love, because they're all different kinds of love, right? I love Pokemon. I mean, that's a kind of love but it needs to be distinguished from other kinds of love. What makes agape unique is that it's unconditional. Here's the definition of agape from Wikipedia. 
Now, I know Wikipedia, you know, can't trust everything you read on the internet, right? But these days, experts are controlling content on Wikipedia, especially in areas of philosophy and religion. It's very accurate. And he says, in Christianity, agape is unconditional love, the highest form of love, the love of God for man and of man for God. This is in contrast to other types of loves as it embraces a universal, unconditional love that transcends and persists regardless of circumstance. Very clear, don't you think? So agape should have always been translated as unconditional love to distinguish it from romantic love, mother's love, other kinds of love, right? It's very clear. It's really important to understand because it's agape that saves, not other kinds, not arrows. Otherwise, we will be lifting up lust as a virtue that will save us. Ludicrous. It shouldn't work like that. It makes me suspicious even because it would serve the theologians and pastors who want to teach conditional tribal theology like I alone have the right understanding of how to be saved, so follow my teachings. You know, there's, there are conditions. We have to follow these things, and, and that's the only way that we'll be saved, and that will really serve these people, right? Suspicious. Anyway, this theologian in this passage something, does something exactly like that. He wants to put conditions on love, probably because his relevance depends on it. But the theologian wanted to justify himself, like justify his theologian self. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wants to understand the conditions under which he must love, right? Who's in, who's out, who's my neighbor that I'm required to love, and who's not my neighbor that I'm not required to love? It's conditional thinking, isn't it? He wants to put conditions on this. Give me some boundaries on what, my, what I must do, right? That's what he wants to know. In response, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a worship pastor, when he came to the place and saw him, crossed to the other side and passed him by. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Unbelievable. Anyway, which, were, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The theologian replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Be like that, Samaritan. Now, this passage is usually taught as a lesson in selfless service, right? Pastors bring up this passage when they need more volunteers, right? <laughs> Come on, guys, Jesus did so much for you, you know, like this. You go out of your way and serve. Don't be selfish, right? This good Samaritan comes up when 
We are exhorted to go help out people. And, uh, you know, all that service, then you'll be rewarded with salvation. Which doesn't make sense, given that salvation is supposed to be by faith alone, right? It's what you believe, not what you do, supposedly, according to Christian faith. So how does that make sense? You see, we must remember this story was told as a response to the question about who is my neighbor? What are the conditions? Who must I love and who do I not have to love? This story is a lesson on that question, not a response about how selfless or how much service you have to do. The theologian didn't ask, how much should I serve? That wasn't the question. The question was, what are the conditions? Who am I supposed to love and, and who am I supposed to not love? You have to read that answer in that context. This is an answer to that question. The bad examples in the story, the priest and the worship pastor, represent the theologian's mentality. They exhibit conditional tribal mentality. They cross to the other side and pass him by. See, it's not just they just went by. It's they crossed, they passed by on the other side. Because you can't tell which group this man belongs to. You know you can tell so much from our clothing? Is that picture up, Right? Especially back then, your clothing really tells you like what kind of religion you belong to, what race you are, blah, blah, blah. But this man is stripped of all that. He's stripped of all identity markers. He could be any man. And that's a problem for the pastors, priests, worship leaders, or this theologian, because they are under biblical obligation to help out their neighbor, their fellow Jew, but not the unbelievers. They are not neighbor, especially if they are dead, which this man looks like. Then the devout people have to keep a certain distance from them in order to follow the Bible. So that's why to keep the distance, they cross to the other side to pass him by. The audience at the time, this theologian, would have understood immediately why they had to cross to the other side. It's a cultural, religious thing at the time, you know? And then scandalously, Jesus brings up a Samaritan. We need to understand. Samaritans were bitter enemies to the Jews. It's like Muslim Palestine and Israel today, right? They don't like each other. They despise each other. They're, they're like cats and dogs, right? Not a good situation. So when Jesus says, you want to be saved, be like the Good Samaritan. It's like telling conservative Christian or Jewish rabbi that a Muslim Palestinian is the example for who goes to heaven. Do you see how hot this teaching would be? Do you understand this is not a bland, cliche teaching about all oh, love is what's going to save you? You should serve more. 
Do you see how controversial that would be today? Can you imagine if someone said a Buddhist, a Muslim, a secular transgender pagan, they are like today's equivalent of a Samaritan back then. They are the template for who gets to be saved, be like them. No wonder the church back then rejected and killed Jesus. We understand that now, right? I mean, you can. I, I conservative church. Such rejection would happen today, too, if someone came around and tried to like, teach that to the church. They would not be happy, don't you think? Now we understand why that happened. Jesus doesn't mention four spiritual laws, doesn't mention sacraments and confirmations and baptisms, only that this Samaritan, this unbelieving Samaritan, showed unconditional love in contrast to the priest and the worship pastor. The implications are huge, if you really understood all this, right? I mean, how are these different? tribes and religions and different people. It's not so much about tribal markers. According to Jesus, anyone could go to heaven as long as you act like this Samaritan. This is a clear teaching from Jesus that unconditional love, agape, is the saving power. This is why the gospel is good news. Because unconditional love, well, that's good news to everyone. That's not something to reject and stay away from. Unconditional love is pretty much welcomed by any person, wouldn't you think? So if we try to follow Jesus instead of the theologian, what impact would this have on our daily life as Christian? First, Christian discipleship should not be about checking off holiness box. How much do I pray? How much Bible do I read and memorize? Christian discipleship becomes all about growing in unconditional love. And sin is anything that goes against unconditional love. That's it. Unfortunately, today, Christian discipleship and sin is understood in terms of how this theologian thinks. Give me the conditions of what I must follow and what I don't have to follow, and if I break that, then I'm sinning. And that's a very simplistic way of thinking that Jesus is blowing up here. Those who study the Bible, those devout people, the righteous ones, they think they'll go to heaven. And unbelievers and sinners, like the divorced people or the LGBTQ, the secular people, today's equivalent of Samaritans, they will go to hell. That's how people think. Jesus blows all that up. Sin is when you discriminate in any way. Sin is when you treat people bad, including yourself, because of some condition, any condition. Think of 9-11 terrorists. They showed great devotion to their idea of God, don't you think? They were selfless to the point of giving up their lives in service to God in their mind. So why were they wrong? Why, why would we condemn them? Such selfless sacrifice. Because they showed discrimination. I'm sure they were lovely to their own mothers and their children and their neighbor. You know, devout Muslims are very lovely 
to, and very kind and very compassionate to their neighbor. But they believe the infidels should be killed. The Jews, the Christians, the Americans, they are the devil. Killing them is service to God, is what they thought, right? Clearly. That's conditional tribal mentality that comes from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's as sinful as it can get. Nazis did the same thing. They divided. Germans are good, blonde, blue-eyed Germans are great, Jews kill them all. Discrimination. Communists do the same thing. Capitalists, bad, kill them all. Chavez in Venezuela did the same thing. They all wrap themselves in righteousness. They all wrap themselves in talks of selfless service, working for the poor, the people, serve, 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 and they bring so much harm. And Christians do this too, too often. Please understand this. What ruins the world, the original sin, its conditional worth is the root sin. The mentality that says some people are worthy, some people are not. Some people are my neighbor, and some people are not my neighbor. In American capitalism today, our mentality is like, Successful people, successful people are worthy. Beautiful people are worthy. If you have lots of followers on Instagram, you're worthy. That's why we want more followers. You know, you got to put up things. Get more followers. That makes me feel good about myself. Ah, there is a lot of value to being successful and contributing to society, sure. But success does not make you more worthy in Christian faith. As Christians are worth is in God's love and regard for us only. Nothing else. Amen? The world conditions us to think if we fail to perform, if we fail to measure up, that's why we beat ourselves up. If we fail to measure up on some standard in our own head, we beat ourselves up because we don't think we're worthy anymore. We're no longer part of that neighbor group in our mind. We think we are abandoned by God, cursed by God. We're being punished by God because we couldn't get that job, because we couldn't find someone we love. We had a crush on someone, and they rejected you, which has happened to me numerous times. You know, then we beat ourselves up. If we become helpless, beaten up, left on the side of the road like this man, if we are left behind by American capitalism, we can't keep up, and we just can't seem to get a toehold in this world, are we no longer worthy? Are we no longer worthy to God? That's what this teaching is about, because Jesus is that good Samaritan, as opposed to the worship pastor and the priest representing the theologian. They are in opposition. Two mentalities. Jesus shows no partiality. Jesus dies for all humanity with no conditions attached. The Bible puts it this way. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Condition. But God demonstrates unconditional love for us in this. While we were still unbelieving bad people, Christ died for us. 
So the Bible is telling us God's love, it's not about you being worthy of meeting any condition. It's unconditional as, op as opposed to putting some conditions. Isn't that very clear? Of being righteous or good or whatever. What a powerful passage. No condition required. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Believing this will change you. That's really the only condition. And it's not something that, can, that you can get rid of. I mean, believing, you have to believe this. To believe this is, is an intrinsic condition. I mean, it's not a condition in that sense, I mean, right? It is what it is. You have to believe this. And believe this, believing this will save you. It will change you. It will save you from the rat race. It will save you from that inner torment, that feeling of inadequacy, that feeling that you're not measuring up and that, that pressure, the, the, the worries, the anxieties, the, the way that you look at yourself and you go, oh, I'm not good enough. All that torment, all that you know, anguish, mental anguish. You know what I'm talking about? You will be saved from all that. If you really try to believe this more and more and more, this is how faith saves you and why faith alone will save you. Because once you believe this, it will change your life. You, you won't, like, beat up yourself anymore. You'll feel good about who you are, no matter what. Wouldn't that be great? If you just every day walk up feeling great about who you are, no matter what? I mean, not, yeah, that would be awesome, right? Not like a narcissist. You know, narcissists can't look at them, their flaws. They think they have no flaw because they, they, that's a flip side of insecurity. But this is security. You can look at your flaws, all of your flaws, and it doesn't bring you down. Right? You can work on your flaws, and it doesn't bring you down. What a great place to be! Heaven! You can get a glimpse of heaven in that, can't you? That's wonderful. Salvation by faith. So being a Christian means fighting the conditional mentality exhibited by the theologian, by this whole world, in our own hands, and then out there in the systems of the world because there's so much caste, groupthink, tribal mentality out there. Fight them anywhere and everywhere you see it. Anytime, and church does this very often, right? Conditions. Fight them. Wherever you see conditions, fight them. Rethink your understanding of what Christian faith is about. I'm excited about that. I am excited about telling you more about these things. Um, so that's why I love church. <laughs> I love this kind of place where we can really talk about the gospel, change our mentality, and get to a better place. Amen? Let's worship God.